Our Father, we thank you for the privilege we have this evening to gather again to praise you in song like we've just sung. Father, as we look into this series now, we pray that your Spirit, who resides within us, would give us strength to deal with things that afflict us and oftentimes we're just not that conscious about. So build us up and help us to grow more into the image of Christ through this series, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome tonight as we begin a series that we are entitling Our Respectable Sins. We're going to be taking this right up to about December 18th. What we're going to do, we've brought a theologian together here with a doctorate in counseling. And so between the two of us, what we've been working on for months is to present a series We actually took the title from a book that Jerry Bridges wrote in 2007 talking about respectable sins, confronting the sins we tolerate. And uh, because uh, Dr. Tom deals with um, counseling people all the time, and that's been his ministry as a pastor and received his doctorate in that area, and as, as I deal with theologian in the area of spiritual growth and sanctification in our lives, is... is uh, 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 Perhaps sometimes there's things that keep us or we give excuses to why we are able to tolerate this in our life. And so what we've decided to do is do a series where each Sunday night we'll sing a song or two, we'll get us started, and then I'm going to speak for about 20 minutes. Then in the middle of that, we'll sing another song, take up our offering, do all that. Then Tom's going to speak for about 20 minutes. And then if there's time at the end, we're going to do a question and answer. And I will take a character or something, a scriptural passage, and that deals with that and what God is showing us where this sin raised up its head in the lives of individuals. And I'll look at it in an expository unit. He's then going to talk about in regular normal, our life today. So we're going to take the biblical world and then our world and how we can have practical helps to dealing with this. And so it should be a helpful series as we wrestle through respectable sins. Now, because Bridges dealt with it, what I wanted to do tonight, and I was going to deal with an introduction, but I want to move real quickly so we can give him maximum time, because tonight he's doing the larger share of the speaking. Next week, I will do that. And then we will really launch this series as we get into October. Then that's where we do each of the, the ten episodes or the, the respectable sins that we've laid out. It's an oxymoron in many respects. Jerry Bridges, though, in his book, Respectable Sins, and I want to read some paragraphs from him. He begins with a chapter called The Disappearance of Sin. I sat on the pulpit, by the way, two weeks ago when Bruce Ware one of America's leading theologians, teaches at Southern. Uh, one of our groups, Sola de Gloria, got up to sing, and he, Bruce nudged me right away. Bruce is also a theologian. His doctorate's in systematic as well. And he said to me, he nudged me, he says, Dave, have you ever noticed our songs now sing about shame? He says, uh, and, and he said, the last 10 years, he says, I've been watching this in, in all of our choruses and in our songs. We sing about words like shame, and, but we've taken the word sin out we've changed it. I didn't really give it that much thought, but then my mind clicked back to, that's exactly what Bridges said too. And so did Don Carson in a 2001 piece. Let me read a little bit. In his 1973 book, Whatever Became of Sin, psychiatrist Carl Menninger wrote, quote, the very word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was once a proud word. It was once a strong word, an ominous, serious word. But the word went away. 
It has almost disappeared. The word along with the notion. Why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? End of the quote. To reinforce his observations, Dr. Menninger noted that in the presidential proclamation for the annual National Day of Prayer in America, the last time the word sin was mentioned was in President Eisenhower's proclamation in 1953. And those words were borrowed by him from the call to national prayer by Abraham Lincoln in 1863. So, as Dr. Menninger has observed, quote, as a nation, we officially ceased sinning now 50 years ago. In 2001, New Testament scholar Dr. Donald Carson commented that the most frustrating aspect of doing evangelism on universities today is the fact that students generally have no idea of sin. They know how to sin well enough, but they have no idea of what constitutes sin. Bridges writes, The entire concept of sin has virtually disappeared from our American culture at large and has been softened even within many of our churches to accommodate modern sensibilities. Indeed, strong biblical words for sin have been excised from our vocabulary. People no longer commit adultery. Instead, they have an affair. Corporate executives do not steal, they commit fraud. But what about our conservative evangelical churches? Has the idea of sin all but disappeared from us also? No, it has not disappeared, but it has in many instances been deflected to those outside our circles who commit flagrant sins such as abortion, homosexuality, and murder, or the notorious white-collar crimes of high corporate executives. It's easy for us to condemn those obvious sins while virtually ignoring our own sins, such as gossip or pride, envy or bitterness and lust, or even our lack of those gracious qualities that Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Skipping a few paragraphs. Within our conservative evangelical circles, on the whole, we appear to be more concerned about the sins of society than we are about the sins of the saints. In fact, we often indulge in what I call, he says, the respectable or even acceptable sins without any sense of sin. Our gossip or unkind words about a brother or sister in Christ roll easily off our tongues without any awareness of wrongdoing. We harbor hurts over wrongs long past without any effort to forgive as God has forgiven us. We look down our religious noses at those sinners in society without any sense of a humble, there but for the grace of God, go I. Why do we not also mourn over our selfishness or our critical spirit or impatience or our anger or even our worldliness. Skipping three or four pages before I close, he says, We who are believers tend to evaluate our character and conduct relative to the moral culture in which we live. Since we usually live at a higher moral standard, and I would say every one of us in this room does, since we usually live at a higher moral standard than society at large, 
It is easy for us to feel good about ourselves and to assume that God feels that way also. We fail to reckon with the reality of sin still dwelling within us. We present-day believers have, to some extent, been influenced by the feel-good-about-myself philosophy of our times. By contrast, he then says, believers back in the Puritan era of the 17th century had a different view of themselves. How many of you have read a Puritan book in the last year or so? Anybody here? A few of you have. They write differently, don't they? They feared the reality of sin still dwelling in them. Bridges writes, I have in my library four books on sin by pastors of that era. That would be two centuries ago. Here are the titles. Number one, The Sinfulness of Sin. Another book, The Mischief of Sin. A third book, The Anatomy of Secret Sins. And a fourth book, The Evil of Evils or the Exceeding Sinfulness of Sin. By the way, I wouldn't dare write one of those. They don't sell today, all right? These pastors all saw sin for what it actually is, a diabolical force within us. Ralph Venning, who was a Puritan writer, V-E-N-N-I-N-G, the author of The Sinfulness of Sin, uses especially colorful, in a negative sense, words to describe sin. Just two more paragraphs, and here's what Bridges says. Over the space of only a few pages, Venning writes that sin is vile, ugly, odious, malignant, pestilent, pernicious, hideous, spiteful, poisonous, virulent, villainous, abominable, and deadly. Take a few moments to ponder those words so as to get the full impact of them. Those words describe not just the scandalous sins of society, but also the respectable sins we tolerate in our own lives. Think of such tolerated sins as impatience, pride, resentment, frustration, and self-pity. Before I close my section, he goes on to say this. I referred earlier to the Puritan Ralph Venning's book, The Sinfulness of Sin. The title sounds somewhat like a tautology, a needless repetition. But in his title, Venning was trying to make a point, and here is the point in his own words. Quote, he's now quoting Venning. On the contrary, as God is holy, all holy, and only holy, altogether holy and always holy, so sin is sinful, all sinful, only sinful, altogether sinful, and always sinful. It does not matter whether our sin is scandalous or respectable, all of our sin is sinful, only sinful, and altogether sinful. Whether it is large or small in our eyes, it is always heinous in the sight of God." God forgives our sin because of the shed blood of Christ, but He does not tolerate it. Instead, and here's the amen, every sin that we commit, even the subtle sins that we don't even think about anymore, was laid upon Christ as He bore the curse of God in our place on the cross. And all God's people would say, amen. And herein lies chiefly the malignancy of sin. Christ suffered because of our sins. He goes on to say if we would realize that, that you know what? This too was what he died for. We would be quick to ask God's forgiveness of our envy and our criticism or gossip or whatnot. Well, let's talk about those things over the next few weeks. And 
It's much easier to preach about the sins of society. It's harder to deal with these. But you know what? When we deal with these and you confess them, it really does feel good before the Lord. And that's what we want to do over the next few weeks. So let's work on it. And it's not just about confessing, but it's about, Lord, help me to get victory over these things. That's what we're working on. So we can be conformed more to the image of Christ. That's called sanctification. And that's what we want. Let's go before the Lord, and then Dr. Tom will come. Dr. Zempel is going to come and launch us into our study this evening. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to serve you. We love you, Lord. By the way we sometimes live, it doesn't look like we love you enough. And one day when we see you face to face, we will love you as we should. In the meantime, Lord, help us to grow, please. And through this series, may it be used to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a pastor evangelist friend years ago said to me, he says, Tom, you know why you're so short? I said, no. He says, because the wicked will be cut off. I really enjoy working with Dr. Burgraff and serving underneath him. I just feel like we're comrades. You know, we're short. (laughs) I'm wicked. He's not. (laughs) I want to begin this series laying a foundation of how we ought to think about and how we need to think about the respectable sins that we struggle with. Actually, the way we deal with any sin and every sin. And as we, as we study theology and look at the issue of sin, one of the things that we are faced with is this whole idea of the cause or what comes before the sin itself. I really believe that one of the reasons the respectable sins have become respectable is because believers today, unlike the Puritans, Believers today have not thought about what is before the sin, what is before the jealousy, what is before the pride, what is before the anger. And so they feel helpless. So they go through all these gymnastics, spiritual gymnastics, of trying to get rid of the anger, but they have never really given consideration and thought about the cause or what is prior to the sin. Let me just start from a positive standpoint, and then I'm going to bring it over to man prior to the fall and man after the fall as we think about this. I'll illustrate what I'm I'm trying to say here and see if this makes sense to you. That anger, Paul says in Ephesians, be angry, but don't sin in your anger. Okay, well, now we got this challenge, right? We've got, okay, how can I be angry and not sin in my anger? I've figured out how to sin in my anger. Now, how can I be angry and not sin? Well, anger, if it's stirred up at the proper time and in the proper manner, then becomes an efficient cause for really good things. Okay, if it's stirred up at the proper time and proper manner, then it becomes an efficient cause for things like manliness, for things like patience, for endurance. So when Moses armed the bands of the Levites for the slaughter of their brethren to punish idolatry, it is anger, the efficient cause of anger was stirred up at a good time, for a good purpose, 
so that it gave them the bravery, the courage, and so forth of manliness and patience and endurance and righteousness to do the good thing. And every, every volition has an effect. And thus, it must have a cause. Every volition, every will, every decision I make, every volition has an effect. Sometimes for good, really sometimes for a lot of hurt and a lot of harm. But what is the cause? And that's what we want to talk about. What's behind that? What is the cause for what I'm doing? We walk. We have the ability to walk, so we walk. But having the ability to walk does not determine whether I go east or west when I walk. So what is behind my walking that determines that I go east or go west? Or that I, as I like to tell people when I'm counseling them, it's very important that you stop once in a while and look to see what direction your toes are pointed. Are we walking towards Christ or are we walking away from Christ? Well, what's behind my walking that determines that I'm going to go away from Christ or that I'm going to walk towards Christ? I'm just going to share some scriptures with you tonight. I'm going to try to flesh this out in a way that makes sense to you. I'm going to be applying it in every case as we move along in this series, as we look at the ten sins that we want to flesh out for you. As I counsel, I work out of this kind of a framework, this kind of a platform. I don't talk about these things necessarily to my counselees, but I think about them. And I try to get them to find out what's behind what's going on in their lives to give that serious thought. And one of the things we find as we look at Scripture, like Job 1 and verses 1 and 8, there's a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God. We're going to find a number of passages in the Scriptures where we find this concept of fearing God. And I'm not going to read all these passages, but notice how often they come up. And and Abraham said, I did it. I did what? I I was willing to lie. And now here here we look at something very different. Let me go back to my illustration of anger. If there is indeed an anger that is righteous... ...then we we also know in that passage there's there's an anger that isn't righteous. Anger that is righteous is the cause, the efficient cause. Anger that is wicked, anger that is sinful, is not the efficient cause. There is something behind that that allows me to choose to get angry. Now notice what Abraham does. He lies. Why? Because he thought there was no one there who actually feared God. Well, that's a good concern. But then why didn't he do something other than lie? The question is, why did he lie? This is not the answer, because there was no fear in God. He thought that, but that is not why he lied. That is not the efficient cause. We're going to look, and and those are the kind of things I want to get you to start thinking about. There's something behind that. Yes, there's a state here. there's 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 a situation. There's a thought, valid or not valid. He just thought there was no one there who loved God. So he was willing to do this. Malachi 
tells, as he's speaking to the, the priests and their wicked ways in Malachi, he talks about Levi. And he says, my covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him, that is Levi. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me, that is, he feared God. He stood at awe of my name. It seems to me that when we look at man in Genesis 2 and 3, 2 primarily, the creation of man, that God created us with this capability, this capacity, this enormous capacity to fear him. That fear is often defined as a reverential awe of God. That fear sometimes is referred to as this this deep affection. And I think Joseph, post-fall, but I think Joseph illustrates this kind of fear in, in a most marvelous way. After he goes through the whole time period. He goes to where people forget him. He's in prison and so forth. He gets out of prison. Potiphar makes him head over everything that Potiphar owned except his wife. And then he's confronted and faced with the proposition of Potiphar's wife. And Joseph says this. You would expect him to say, why would I do that and sin against my master, Potiphar? He doesn't. He says, why would I do this and sin against my God? Why would he say that? It is because behind all of these things that are going on, there is this huge affection for God, an affection for God that did not allow for Joseph to make any other decision than the one he made. That fear of God diminishes after, we're, after the fall, and that fear becomes a phobia. We become afraid of everything. And because we're afraid of everything else, we're not very fearful of God. So we lose this reverential awe for God. And in Christ, it is available to us that we need to get back to the place where we love God supremely. That is, we love the Lord thy God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And that it is developing within our soul this reverential respect, this affection for God, that when sin faces us, that we are willing to say, why would I do that and sin against my God? Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Those who do not fear God are not interested in knowledge. Deuteronomy Notice the interesting passage. In the morning you shall say, oh, that it were evening. And in the evening you shall say, oh, that it were morning. Why? Because of the fear which terrifies your heart. This is that, this is that phobia that, that dwells up and swells up in the, in the souls of individuals because they lack to fear God. If we feared God, these things would not be fearful to us. What does it mean to fear God? To fear God is to stand in awe of him, to revere him, to submit to his authority and dread his displeasure. It may seem to run counter to our happiness, but it is not. The more we stand in awe of God, the more likely we are to obey. The more we obey, the more happiness we find. So I say then that it is not good to look for the why of sin. This is so important. It is good to look for the cause, the efficient cause of my anger. 
But it is not good to ask, why didn't I get angry? Because the answer isn't going to work. The answer is not going to bring to you what you actually need. Because we're going to answer it like this. We may say, well, you made me angry. Or you didn't do what I asked you to do. That's why I got angry. See, we're, we're going to give an answer that doesn't help resolve the sin. By the way, it's those kinds of scenarios that go on in our lives that bring us to the place where we say things like this. Well, it's just the way I am. I was born with a short fuse. Well, you'd be angry too if somebody did that to you. And then it becomes a respectable sin. Right? So it's not good to ask for the why of sin. Although we can and must look for motivations. We must look for the cause. Yea, I would suggest to you we must look for the efficient cause of the sins that we're going through and the sins that we, that we produce. So we must realize that sin is indeed, and Dr. Burgraff listed a whole list from the Puritans. I like to add these to the list. That is, it's unreasonable, it's idiotic, incomprehensible as we compare it to the love of God. There is nothing rational about sin. So when we start asking the why question about sin, there's no good answer to to that which is idiotic, to that which is irrational. So that's not where we're going to start. That's not where we want to start. Burkhauer in his Theology on Sin says this, it's an enigma. Therefore, our behaviors will not always make sense. In fact, in sin, our behaviors never make sense, do they? Our biblical model as such will be seemingly deficient when we discuss ideologies of our acts. It's not going to help. It is essential, then, that we maintain the riddle of sin. Otherwise, sin is reduced to causes or to efficient causes. We would then have a theory of man that was devoid of personal responsibility. That may sound like a contradiction. It's not. We don't want to explain our sin by the efficient cause itself and leave us out. But we've got to figure out the efficient cause because it is my heart that has developed that efficient cause that allows me to justify the act that I'm performing. We'll get there as we look at the individual sins. I'm just laying a framework. Matthew says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside. Here's the part that we've, that we've got to give careful attention to. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Mark says, for from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts. And then he gives us a litany of sinful behaviors. They come out of the heart. They are not explained by a circumstance or a situation. So we might ask, then, why did Cain kill Abel? What was the efficient cause? I think we could answer that. Let me just give a quick application here, and then I'm going to give you a real-life case. I'm going to share with you a counselee, and I think as I share the counselee's story, by the way, you don't know this counselee. It's no one from around here. But then you may know this counselee just because you know a lot of other people like this counselee. In fact, we find ourselves in the life of the counselee. But just to apply what I'm saying, Sarah lied because of fear. 
Cain murdered because of anger. These are efficient causes. See, we're not going to counsel Sarah about lying. We're going to counsel Sarah about her fear, her phobia. We're going to counsel Cain about his anger. Because if all we do is counsel them about the act that they performed and never get to the efficient cause, then all we've done is put a Band-Aid on them, and they go on, and then what's going to happen? The right circumstance, the right situation will arise in their life again where it makes sense to be fearful, where it makes sense to get angry, and then they'll perform the same act again. Sarah will lie. Cain will murder. Peter denied Christ because of the fear and shame of being identified with him and with those around him. Let me illustrate this out in the next 15 minutes, and I promise to be done. I will quit at 7, okay? I promise. The counselee that I'm going to share with you is a, a young man who was caught up in and struggled with some pretty deep kind of pornography kinds of issues, okay? And I think the minute we hear those kinds of things, we, we kind of separate ourselves from this person and say, well, I've never had that problem. You know, you may not have the same, the same behavior that this counselee had, but think with me as I work through this, do you have the same efficient causes? They just only reflect themselves in another way. So what lies behind the addictive behavior? I say lies make the liar, stealing makes the thief, hate makes the murderer. And as we look at this counselee, let's picture it this way with me, if we may, tonight while we're sitting here. And imagine sin in this counselee that I'm going to share with you. Picture what's going on in his life as though you were walking into a multiplex theater. You walk up to the theater on the marquee as they're featuring one great film. But that's not all that's going on in in this theater. There are all kinds of rooms with all kinds of screens and a lot of other kinds of movies going on. A lot of films being played at the same time. And that's what was going on in this person's life. By the way, I would suggest that that's kind of what our lives are like. You may be defined as, well, everybody knows you're just an angry man. What you need to know is what is going on in these other theaters because those are the efficient causes. Those are the things before the sin. And maybe picturing it that way will help you. The addictive sin is the featured movie, but we have these other things that are going on. And it's illustrated in the case of this young man. He's a single man. By the way, just so we can diminish any wrong or invalid thinking about these kinds of issues that we have found in, our, in research and, and so forth, that the kinds of sins that this young man was involved in are mostly committed by married people, not singles. So we don't want to put a stigma on singles. And they're equally practiced by women as they are by men. Okay, that's just a sideline. But then again, I think that's true of all our sin. I I don't think just men get angry. Women get angry. Singles get angry. Children get angry. 
I've seen them in the stars. Right? <laughs> and I'm just old enough to forget that my kids ever got angry. You know, that's... He came to Christ when he was 15. And at that point in time, and I find this interesting, I find a lot of people struggle with, with some really in-depth kinds of sinful behavior that begins at the time that they got saved. But it was at that time his 20-year struggle with sexual lust began. It involves episodic use of pornography and masturbation. Over the years, he has experienced many victories, but just as many defeats. And over the years, he has tried all the right and good things. And these are the kinds of things we try to do to deal with the sinful behavior. They're not going to work. And I just want to say again, because they don't get to the efficient cause. These things don't work. They're good things. But it's not where we need to start. Accountability, scripture memorization, prayer, fasting, filling his time with constructive things to do, vigorous exercises, cold showers, dietary regimes, and even self-help books. And many of the self-help books, if you read them, would, would say it's okay. It's okay. I counseled a young couple one time, and the wife was fed up with her husband's pornography and said, either he changes or I'm going to end the marriage. And when I turned to him, he basically said to me, well, I don't want to lose my marriage over this. He says, the pornography is, is just a hobby with me. It's an interesting way of looking at our sin, isn't it? For 20 years, it's been sin is bad. This is what he's being told. Sin is bad. Don't do it. Just do. And you can fill in any one of the things of the paragraph above. You've got to read the Bible more. You're not spending enough time praying. If you would just pray more, maybe you should go to church one more. Maybe go to two services on Sunday. Hear the sermon twice. That might help you. Now, are any of those things bad in and of themselves? No, of course not. But they are not going to help this individual to get over the issues that he's dealing with or the issues that we deal with. So here's this pattern. There are a series of relative purity Sometimes those, t- those periods of time were days. Sometimes they were weeks. Sometimes even months where he was having continual victory. And then he would fall and go through seasons of defeat. Thus, his life was filled with guilt, discouragement, despair, shame. He then begs God for forgiveness over and over without any relief or joy The long victories do more to alleviate guilt than any relationship with Christ. His real hope goes back, but I had four years of of staying away from this stuff. And to him, that, that had more meaning for him than to accept the fact that God would forgive him and that he could start over new and so forth. So he relied on those long periods of of what he would call purity. And so what do we do? And by the way, the goal of the counselor, we ought to identify this person, the counselor. And I'm going to suggest to you as we look at these things over the next 12, 13 weeks, that the counselor is you, the counselor is me. We are going to self-counsel. Or it may be someone who's going to come and sit down beside you, and you may need the help of somebody else as we work through some of these things. Then I trust you would do that. But I think we've got to learn how to deal with these issues in our own hearts and our own lives uh, in, as, as we think through these things. So we're going to ask things like this. What is missing? 
What's going on in the days and hours before uh, this begins to happen? And then, why does his approach to the Christian life seem so dehumanized and so depersonalized? So, I asked that he keep a log. I wanted some history, day by day, what's going on. And the counselee told me that he didn't have to keep a log. He could tell me. He could tell me how his days went. He could tell me how his weeks went. He could tell me the weeks that he fell and then the progression that went on after the fall. And so we entered into this person's theater. He reveals that his failures are only on the weekends. Well, that's, that's interesting, only on the weekends. We may say, well, I only get angry when, okay, or I only get jealous when, I'm only envious when, and you have already forced yourself not into the jealousy, but you have put yourself, unknowingly, you've put yourself in another one of the theaters in this multiplex theater, and you are identifying efficient cause. And we might name this one, this movie that's going on, I Only Fall on Friday and Saturday Nights. Then he reveals that he goes out and buys Playboy as a temper tantrum against God. This was a loaded comment. And I would find here another theater, another efficient cause that was going on in his life. And I would identify this one as angry at God. Angry at God. Now, people think with me. Would you in any way identify being angry at God as a respectable sin? I don't think any of us would. It's not in the list that we're looking at. We're not going to talk about angry at God, not as a respectable sin. But the truth of the matter is that a lot of the sins we commit is because we're angry at God. God hasn't given to me what I deserve. God doesn't treat me right. God is unfair. God doesn't care about me. Why did God allow this to happen in my life? And there's bitterness and resentment and anger towards God. And it, and it shows itself in a lot of different ways. So we've got to look at the theater. He goes on and he says this. He says, I come home Friday night. I'm all alone. All my friends are home with their wife. And he reveals that he builds up a good head of steam of self-pity. And by 10, he begins to think things like this. I deserve a break today. Which pushes us into another theater and another movie that's going on. That is, God owes me a wife. One of the sins we want to look at is deserveitis. This is one of them. I deserve a wife. Or I deserve a job. Or I deserve a job that pays, you know, 80000 as opposed to 75000 So I'm not going to take this. I deserve this. Or I deserve 100000 I deserve a home with four bedrooms, not just three. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. I deserve a husband who affirms me. I deserve a wife that just has a meal fixed for me every time I come home. I walk in the door, it's on the table. I deserve that. I deserve kids who are good. Deserve itis. God owes me a wife. 
And he goes on to explain why God owes him a wife. Because he says, I've tried to do the right things. Remember, go back and in, in, as we began with this counseling, I, I try to do the good things. I've served him. I tried accountability. I've memorized scripture. I've tried being a good Christian. I do ministry. I witness. I tithe. It's amazing. People who are habitually practicing respectable sins. And and, and don't be offended. Let me start here. They're on the pastoral staff. They're in the choir. They're on the elder board. They're deacons. Go on and on and on, right? I'm, I'm not pointing any fingers. I'm just saying, you know, we, 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 we have allowed it to be a respectable sin, and it doesn't disqualify us from any of these other services or ministries. And we don't do anything about it. We just go on in the ministry like we are doing just fine. This guy wasn't doing fine at all. So what we have here is in another theater, which is very typical of us, I think in those same kinds of sins, and another movie that I would call Legalistic Assets brings self-lacerating depression. And then he goes on, and he says, the result of falling is that he now goes back to his rigorous routine of self-righteous behavior, which I think is another screen, another movie, another film that's going on, self-punishment, self-atonement, penance, and self-hatred, the cure of souls. That's it. That's how I cure my soul. Self-atoning ways. There's a man by the name of Jay Brudzinski who wrote a book on what you can't not know. And he says that people cover their sins by practicing furies. That's what these are. Furies are self-atoning ways of covering up the things that are going on in my life. And so we pray, we read the Bible, we go to church, we serve, we... And people, we're not, I'm not going to say to you, you need to stop all those things. No. What we need to do is learn how to deal with a respectable sin in a biblical way so that we can actually move away from it. You know what? The thing is that I love about all of this, there's real hope. There's real hope because God brings help to us from his word and how to deal with these things. What's this counseling's deceiving problem? It is simply this. Satan has blinded his eyes to only see the sin of sexual lust. See, the deceiving problem is I've only been allowed to see my anger, and I've justified that. Or I've only been allowed to see my envy. And, you know, everybody has a level of envy, right? I mean, he concentrates all his attention on one marquee of his life. But that narrowing of attention serves to mask far more serious, pervasive sins, efficient cause sins, maybe some of which many Christians would call respectable sins. Sin respectable? I think not. I don't think so. Because behind them is the efficient cause. They're really ugly. They're really wretched. They're as wretched as the act that is produced from them. The reaction, the wrong thinking, the wrong behavior. So what we want to do in this series is to identify what sins we have treated as respectable and then to take a serious look at the theater of our life. 